1941, several years into World War II. The shadow of defeat lay heavy on Europe, which had quickly succumbed to the enemy threat. Those who continued to fight in hope were forced underground. Cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed there were some who continued to resist with an enemy-occupied Europe. For many, that resistance began with a single letter, scratched onto subway walls and painted onto enemy tanks. The letter V. V for victory. Soon their calling card could be heard on the radio waves across Europe in its Morse code form. Three dots and a dash. and a dash. It is the sound of defiance and hope, of light and life, of defeat that rises from the ashes. It is the knowledge that we no longer have anything to fear, the sound of fate knocking at the door, and the hope that one day everything will be set aright. And today, we take it up once more as a symbol of triumph for the great battle that ended death itself. Then on the third break of dawn the sun of heaven rose again oh trampled gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ.
this morning, a king who is not dead, he is alive, and he has transformed that shame, that death, into victory this morning. His name is Victory. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory the Savior now to wash our feet. Now at His feet we bow. The one who wore our sin and shame now robed in majesty. The Shines for all to see your name, your name.
was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the Calls me his own. 
Everyone sing this out. Father, we gather as people that celebrate your resurrection, that celebrate your victory over the grave. But if we're honest, many of us live lives of grave people. Dave and I were talking this week, and he said, you know, John, there's a lot of different graveyards. And so, Father, in the room, many of us have one foot in a grave. But the truth of your resurrection story is that Resurrection wasn't only for Jesus. It's for all of his sons and his daughters, all of the children of God that he loves. And so this morning, as we celebrate your resurrection, Jesus, the opportunity given to us for new life now and forever, would you call out of the grave each and every one of us to new life, to hope, to freedom, to trust, eternity. We celebrate you this Easter, Jesus. We honor, revere, and believe in Jesus Christ, our living hope. And the church at Mendham said really loudly, Amen. Welcome to church on Easter Sunday. Would you raucously thank everybody serving you all over the church today? This place is sick with talent, right? Like it's unbelievable. It's really worthy of it. It really is. It's like it's very it's very humbling for me. I have so little, honestly. Like I'm not even feigning humility. I'm like, man, <laughs> these guys are so good, 
I don't know if you were here on Good Friday. How many were here on Good Friday? I mean, what, a, what an awesome night that was. Can I just, I want to thank everybody that has participated in this. You know, Easter, we start planning Easter months in advance. And, you know, uh, for all of you that worked on the videos and, the, and, you know, the music and just all of the stuff that goes into it. I mean, it was a friend of mine that was here yesterday all day working on a, another project you'll see later on in the service. But you guys are all awesome. Can I ask you to thank every volunteer one more time for all they did this weekend? So my name is John. If you are visiting us this morning, hey, pretty cool day to come visit us. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of a, a fun thing. I'd love for you to know more about our church and what Jesus is up to here in our lives. And we believe that he's calling us to be up to and about in our communities. To do that, just stop by the Welcome Center on your way out as soon as you go out the doors to your right. There's a service host. They're a really friendly person who would love to get to know you. Um, and they have a little gift for you. And they can answer your questions, give you brochures on the ministry. In front of everybody else are the three cards I talk about every week. Information on giving here at Mennon Mills Community Church. Information on engaging, how you can get in one of our many small groups. Over 200 folks in those things. We'd love to get you plugged in into a community. Information on serving. Pretty much everything you see getting done today is being done by a volunteer all over the church. We would love for you to find your place here and serve Jesus in this place. Last but not least, there's a connection card. You could fill that out right in your seat right now, throw it in the offering plate when the ushers come by later in the service, or you can do it digitally online at mhcc.life. That lets us know you're here, and also put your prayer requests down. We have prayer teams praying through all of those things for you. Uh, in fact, you'll see on what's coming up at Mendham, they'll be here again Friday, praying over all those things. Again, one way you can help us out, too, is we're trying to reach our community, to let them know there's a, there is a community of faith, hope, and love that Jesus really is alive and that things could change. And if they don't know we're here, we're not going to be able to reach them. And one of the ways that we're able to do that is to, to, to kind of check in on Facebook. As silly as that sounds, uh, it lets them know that this is a way to share your faith, even, like to just say, hey, uh, I, I'm a Jesus follower, and I'm, I'm checking uh, into Mendham. I'm here every Sunday, and please come ask me about it. And so we'd love for you to check in on Facebook, let your no friends know you're here. Here's what's happening at Mendham this week. Uh, a couple things just to make quick note of. No youth group tonight because it is Easter Sunday. Usually, almost every Tuesday, we have a men's and women's Bible study right here at the church. This week, um, for the holiday week for spring break, that is on pause. It'll resume the following week. And one last thing I want to make you aware of is Friday night... Gentlemen, if you have a special lady in your life, she needs to be between the age of pre-K, so I think that's probably like four, and 12th grade. On Friday night, we are having the daddy-daughter dinner date. Does it say dance? Dinner date. Dinner date. See, I was very relieved that there was going to be no dancing here. Can I get an amen? Because that's very awkward for most of us, and uh, I didn't want to have to experience that. I'm having a hard enough time trying to get my 17-year-old to come with me as it is, let alone if she thought I'd be dancing. But we are going to have an awesome night. It's going to be a high-end night. Um, the room's going to be beautifully decorated. Dinner, food, games, fun. Uh, we're going to help you to uh, ask good questions with, with your special, uh, special little girl. So please, 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 the tickets for this are almost gone. Um, we'd like, you know, want to make sure you get them. Go to our website, click on Engage, get yourself a ticket for the Daddy-Daughter Dinner Dance this Friday night. One last announcement, just keeping in your kind of frontal lobe, the beyond the walls. Um, Timmerman Verduga Golf Classic is coming up in May. Many of you know that it is the honor of Jack Timmerman. Young man went to our church, killed in a car accident five years ago. Um, this is our fifth annual. And Jack served with us in Guatemala City, uh, atop the Guatemala City garbage dump, where about 12,000 people live and, and, and 
kind of cull out a life amongst, uh, amidst the rubble. And he died um, right before he could get to go back. And so what we do is we honor him every year. And this is our sole fundraiser. Uh, we have been able to build, I don't know, 100, 200 houses down there. We've we take about 150 to 200 people a year down there. This is the way we raise money for the projects. If you can golf, please come golf. I mean, it's an awesome day. If you can't golf, there's other ways you can help us out. Um, we need sponsors. We need things for our online auction. We need bids for our online auction. Please keep that in mind. You'll help what Jesus would say are the least of these. All right, with that said, I'm going to call the ushers forward. They're going to collect your tithes, offerings, gifts, and your connection cards if you filled one out physically. Let me ask you to join me in prayer one more time. This Easter Sunday, Jesus, as I thought about it, it seems so trite in light of the sacrifice you made for us to, um, I mean, give money. It seems silly. But I think you've taught us it never really was about the money. It was really about our hearts and training them to let go of our stuff and to start to love God and not money. And so, Jesus, may through the power of your Holy Spirit that work be accomplished today, and may your kingdom be built through these gifts. In your holy name, amen. So, guys, it is the last service on Easter Sunday. I'm pumped up to be here with you. Um, I'm sweaty. I'm tired. But I got a really cool message to share with you. At some point, I'm probably going to ditch this jacket, too. Um, I'm not much of a jacket guy if you're here regularly. Uh, we've been talking about the concept of victory. That's, the, that's what we cho how, we, how we chose to frame Easter Sunday. And we've been looking at this victory. The Bible keeps talking about uh, that we're in a battle and what it would look like to win the battle. And so we've been looking at this concept of victory. Towards that end, I need to ask you a question. Is anybody aware of a man... Haru Onoda. Anybody ever heard of Haru Onoda? Anyone? Man, I am. Oh, is there one? In, oh, the, you were in the earlier service. That doesn't count. <laughs> so nobody has heard of this poor guy, which is kind of surprising because he's got an amazing story of dedication and courage, but also a story of stubbornness, a little bit of delusion. You see, Haru Onoda was one of the last Japanese soldiers to stop fighting World War II. If you're a history buff, you might know Imperial Japan surrendered to the Allied forces aboard the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945. Keep that date in your mind, 1945. Not Haru. Haru, I mean, Haru doesn't give up that easy. In fact, he didn't know the war was over, so he kept fighting until March 9th. 1946? No. 1947? No until March 9th, 1974. True story, he fought World War II for 29 years after it ended. It was decided, it was finished, he didn't know. He kept fighting. Now, here's the story. He had been trained by the Japanese in guerrilla warfare, and he was sent to the Philippines the day after Christmas, 1944. And in order to hold off the American troops for as long as possible, uh, there was this one skirmish, there was a particularly devastating defeat when they tried, Haru and his, his, uh, his friends tried to um, fight the invading allies head on. But when they were smoked, basically, Haru, along with three other soldiers, retreated to the woods and began to engage in the guerrilla warfare tactics they'd been trained in. And so in the woods, they survived on a diet of rice that they could steal and coconuts and meat from cattle they slaughtered during raids. So August of 1945 comes along, and the war between Japan and the U.S. comes to an end. 
And Onoda and his uh, compatriots up in the mountains notice that there's a, a definitive lull in the fighting, but they suspect there's no way, I mean, that their home nation, that Japan, would surrender. I mean, Japan doesn't surrender. And so he kept fighting, killing local farmers, even engaging in shootouts with local police. Now, knowing the Japanese units didn't have any real method of communication with the Central Military Command, the U.S. made several efforts to make sure the news of Japan's surrender reached these holdouts, including airdropping explanatory leaflets everywhere. Haru and his men found them, but then quickly just dismissed them as propaganda, the way they had been trained. And so another attempt was made towards the end of 1945. More leaflets came this time with a surrender order printed on them from General Yamashita of the Japanese army. Onoda and his men carefully studied the document and eventually decided that it was fake too. He had this traditional sense of national pride. He couldn't imagine that the Japanese would surrender and he knew that they would fight until the last soldier, which was him. And so he and his men continued. They had this little campaign of terror on the countryside in the Philippines. In the early 1950s, one of the four of them just gave up and turned himself into the Filipino authorities, which only served to confirm the existence of the other three. And so the U.S. came up with another plan. They decided they would contact their families and obtain family photos and letters from their relatives, urging them to come home, and then they airdropped those messages across the island in 1952. We found the leaflets and photos from our family, recalled Onoda in a later interview. I assumed they were living under the occupation, and they had to obey the authorities just to survive. Well, to make a nearly 30-year 30 30 long story short, over the coming years, the remaining two of Onoda's squad wound up getting shot and killed trying to carry out their guerrilla warfare tactics. And in 1974, Onoda, alone now in, in the jungle, communicated that he was not going to leave the island until he was relieved of his duty by a superior officer. So upon hearing this, the Japanese government went and tracked down Onoda's commanding officer, who since had become a book retailer. Imagine the guy sitting in Barnes & Noble, right? in the 70s, and, and here, we got a mission for you. And they, this is a true story, right? They fly him back to this little Filipino island. And on March 9, 1974, at the age of 52, Haru Onoda emerged from the jungle, still dressed in the tattered uniform that he wore in, to accept the order from his commander telling him to lay down his arms. In fact, it's a pretty cool picture. His official surrender went to the Philippines president, Ferdinand Marcos. You remember him? Imelda Marcos and all the shoes? Like, that's how recent this was. Now, isn't it amazing that nobody knows this? I'm reading this going, this is crazy. I thought this was the wackiest story I ever heard until, as part of my research, I came across this one. This story from May 2005. 60 years after the war ended, two soldiers emerged from the jungle. Mystery surrounds Japanese men, both in their 80s, who say they've been in hiding since the Second World War. True story. You see, the war was over. It was finished. They just didn't know it. So they kept fighting. Peace had come. But they kept battling. You see, they, I mean, they could have gone home. <laughs> their parents, their girlfriends, 
There was a life waiting for them, kids. But instead, because they didn't know the war was over, they stayed in a foreign and dangerous land. They could have come out of the bushes. They could have come out of their hiding. But instead, they kept hidden. They had life offered to them and freedom, but they missed it. Because they didn't believe, despite the best effort of two countries, that the war was over. Paul planted this church in a city called Corinth, and here's what he wrote. He said, thanks be to God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. But I, I, I can't help but wonder if this Easter morning, some 2,000 years later, after the war ended, if some of us, maybe if we're honest, most of us, have missed the message. And we haven't come out of the bushes and enjoyed the peace and the joy and the life available, the victors that Jesus says we are. And so here is my question for you this Easter morning. What would it take to make you believe the war was over? What would it take for you to believe to have such certainty that the war over sin and death is over that it reoriented the way you lived. What message would you need to have received, airdropped into your house to make you come out of hiding, to stop all the fighting and the striving and the, the worrying and the hustling? What would it take to quell all of the anxiety and the fear and the worry and the depression? What would need to happen in order to convince you at deep core levels that the war is over, sin and death don't win, you do? Now, let's just be honest. My guess is, like Onoda, it would take a few more than a, leaf, a few leaflets. It would take more than a religious tract. That Gideon's Bible that they keep leaving you in the hotel room, I don't think that would do it for me. Some well-meaning Christian on a street corner, probably not. Televangelist, good hair, white teeth, no. See, if you're like me, it, it would take more than that. Because here's why, like, I mean, I'm a human being, right? And my doubts and my fear and my worry are way bigger than that. You're going to need to give me more than that, man. I mean, my plans for my life, what I'm trying to do here and get done and accomplish and leave behind, I mean, what I'm working on and striving for and worrying over, you know, I mean, I got a lot of things to worry about. I got four kids and a wife and aging parents and college education bills and retirement. And, I mean, those things, you want me to change those things? You're going to have to come out with me with something more. Well, how about you? What would it take for you to believe the battle is over and you won? To change, to reorient the way you think and live your life, to help you find peace and joy and strength and hope and victory? If I was going to try to convince you, here's a few things I wouldn't start with. I wouldn't give you a Joel Osteen book. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't make you watch the movie God's Not Dead. I actually wouldn't make anybody watch that movie. That's me. <laughs> Heck, truth is, I wouldn't airdrop a Bible on you for a couple of reasons. They're big and they could hurt. But that, the second is, you, you probably don't believe the Bible. I get that. And so, 
I start here today with Easter. Not the holiday, but, but the history behind the holiday. Here's the story. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, here's what I believe, and I know many of you believe too, although sometimes all of us, not enough to live like the war is over. I believe that Jesus lived and died. Now, there's nothing really all pecu that peculiar about that. I mean, pretty much you could look at any historian or academic of any repute there's not anybody anymore that argues that Jesus was not a real person who lived and ministered in first century Palestine and died on a Roman cross. That was settled a long time ago. But I believe something else. See, I, I think I'm fairly intelligent. Thank You didn't laugh. Second service did. That's good. Good on you. <laughs> See, I, I believe I'm fairly intelligent. 21st century sophisticated man, educated. See, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Let me explain what I mean. I mean, I, I believe Jesus died and was dead. Like, not faking dead, not pretending to be dead, not in some kind of, like, coma-like, slow-breathing state. I mean dead. Like, cold, stiff, blue, smelly, like, dead. And I believe that he came back to life. Why would I believe that? Well, the reason I believe it is for the same reason thousands of people believed it. Listen to me now. For the same reason thousands of people believed it, long before there was Christian radio or TV or books or preachers or pastors or priests, long before there was even a Bible, there were thousands of Christians that had come to believe that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. And they, they reoriented the way they thought and lived around the resurrection. Where did they get that belief from? Where did it come from? You see, I believe for the same reason they believed. I'll give you some of the examples. For example, many of them believed that because they had met personally a man named Matthew. That's a crazy story. If you know the story of Matthew, Matthew was an early follower of Jesus, much to the chagrin, uh, I would think, of the other followers of Jesus. Uh, Matthew was a traitor to his country. He oppressed his fellow Jews for taxes. He worked for the Romans, and he used the threat of violence to extort his own countrymen. Yet along, now who would make this story up? Yet along comes Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, and for some crazy reason, he picks Matthew as one of his first and closest disciples and gives him a pivotal, almost heroic part in the story. And it was Matthew, this same Matthew that walked away from the position he had, who after the resurrection, which he had witnessed, sat down and said, I gotta write this down because no one's going to believe it. There was a guy named Mark. Mark actually wasn't an eyewitness, likely a Greek guy. Uh, he knew some of the disciples, and, and based on their testimony, Mark wrote a really detailed account saying exactly what happened regarding the resurrection. Some of you know there was a guy named Luke. Luke wasn't an eyewitness either. Luke was a pretty sophisticated first century guy, likely highly educated for his time. He was a physician. 
He wasn't an eyewitness, but he was so taken with this account of a man coming back to life, and he saw all that was happening, and so he decided he was going to put his intellect to work, and he wrote all about Jesus in a letter that he wrote to a man named Theophilus. In fact, he starts it. He says, I have, I've carefully investigated everything, because I didn't believe either. I've carefully investigated from the beginning, and I've written an orderly account of this. I believe because there was an eyewitness, a guy named John, who after the resurrection wrote another yet very detailed account about his life with Jesus. There was Peter. Remember Peter? Walk on water. I'm here, Jesus. So I took my eyes off you. I fell. Remember Peter? Oh, don't worry, Jesus. I'll never, I'll never forsake you, deny you. You know, cock-a-doodle-doo and Peter too, right? And off he goes. That Peter? He wound up because he met the resurrected Christ coming out of hiding and writing a couple letters and books about him. It was James, Jesus' brother. James, you know, James, the scriptures actually teaches James, his mother and father, Mary and Joseph from our Christmas stories, uh, they all thought Jesus was crazy at one point in their life. Jesus, James never thought Jesus was the Messiah until he was resurrected and James met him. And he stopped calling him brother and started calling him Lord. There's Paul, right? He's a first century, highly educated Jewish religious leader and a Roman citizen. He had it all. This, this Paul, he tried to extinguish the early Christian movement through force and violence. Paul actually helped martyr the first Christians. The same Paul, he didn't believe any of this stuff. He didn't believe in Jesus' miracles. He didn't believe in Jesus' healings. He didn't believe in any of Jesus' teachings. Until, guess what? He met a resurrected Jesus. Up from the grave he arose, Jesus. And it just radically changed him. And he went on to write almost all, more than half, of your New Testament. Paul's letters, all these other men's historical accounts, their eyewitnesses' accounts, their researching, their firsthand stuff, they wrote it all down so that you might believe. Here's what they wrote. Start with uh, Mark. Mark said, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? What I love about this is here's what every writer that I just told you about agrees upon. The same thing that Mary and Salome would have agreed on that morning, both Marys. On that first Easter morning, everybody associated with Jesus, everybody that knew him, loved him, followed him, you know they all thought he was in the same place. You know where that was? Dead. Every one of them. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Martha, Mary, not one of them. Do you know not one of them start their story and go, you know, they didn't believe, but I did. I mean, I knew he was coming back. You don't find any of their stories where, 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 you know, Peter goes, you know, Peter, right? If you know Peter, I'm sure he would have written this. Or John, he's always saying how much Jesus loved him. They didn't believe, but I sat there waiting because I remembered he said three days and I'll come out of the grave. And so I just sat there Friday, Saturday, Sunday watching because I knew he was going to come out. And I wanted to be there. Not one of them. You know where they all are? Hiding. And so as Mary and Mary and Salome walked there, you know what they were going to do? They were going to embalm, finish the embalming process. The embalming process had started. They were going to finish it. And they were worried, how are we going to get in there? The Romans rolled a big stone there. 
But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was large, had been rolled away. Now, you would think if Mark was just writing a fake account, he would go, yes, and they realized that Jesus was alive. Hallelujah. You know, that's what should have happened. But that's not what happened. What happens is Mary runs back to Peter and the other disciples, the one John, Jesus loved. There's John talking about himself again. And said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She didn't go up from the grave, he rose. Somebody took him. They did something to him. There's no way she assumes he's alive because she's a human being. And she doesn't know who took him. Who's they? We, we don't know. I mean, the Roman authorities, they had a beef with Jesus. Uh, the Jewish high priests, they had a beef with Jesus. Who knows what, what, what she's thinking might have happened. But here's one thing she assumes. He's dead, and somebody took the body. In fact, Luke's account of this story is even kind of funny. He says that one of some of the other women came um, to the disciples to tell of what they had heard from some angels they had encountered at the tomb, speaking of Jesus' resurrection. When these women meet these, these you know, the women, they believe, they're rejoicing. And here's these sophisticated first century disciples. But, when, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Of course they did. That's what it seemed like to them. So if you're here this Easter morning, maybe you're here making your mom happy. Raise your hand if you're here to make your mom happy. <laughs> Thank you, Lewis. I love the honesty. Maybe you're here because Saturday night you were down in Morristown, Revolution, maybe the laundromat, met a hot girl, told you she was going to go to Mendham tomorrow, and you said, well, what the heck? I'll go. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up going to church on Christmas and Easter, and you, you go to church on Easter, right? That's what we do. We go to church on Easter. But if you're honest, you say to yourself, look, I, you know, the Jesus thing. Obviously, I believe in Jesus, but his history and all the rest. And he was a great moral teacher, and I love that whole prodigal son thing. But the resurrection, I mean, come on. You want me to believe that? In 2019, you want me to believe that Jesus was resurrected? If that's where you are this morning, I have good news for you, my friend. This Easter morning, you have the exact same amount of faith in the resurrection that every one of Jesus' followers did. There's still hope for every one of us. Luke goes on, he goes, Peter, when he hears this, he, he got up and he ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away. Went away celebrating Jesus' re resurrection. Up from the grave, he rose. Now, wondering to himself, what happened? What did they do to him? Peter goes back to the city in fear and defeat. And now John, he picks up the story. He goes on to tell what happened with Mary. Mary, probably following Peter. Peter's quick, right? He's a guy. He gets up there, and Mary follows him down. When she got there, John records this. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. Of course, she was crying. I mean, can you imagine what this woman has seen over the last four days? Jesus riding into town for victory, betrayed, killed, Buried and imagine what it meant to Mary. I mean, if you know her story, right? I'm not sure what her reputation was in town, and, and she's a woman, and suddenly this rabbi comes and elevates her position, and 
loves on her, and she becomes something, and, and he talks about a kingdom to come, and, and she's going, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give my life away to this man. He's changing my life. He's made something of me, and now he's gone. Not only is he gone, likely somebody desecrated his body in his grave, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked, Woman, why are you crying? Context here is she doesn't know there are angels. She doesn't drop to her knees or anything. She just answers them. They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. Mary still doesn't get it. And at this... There must have been some rustling or some sound. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. This is like when I see you in ShopRite, and I can't put the right person in the right place, right? Like, I always see you at church, and I'm not sure what's, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, um, the, here's, here's the teaching, right? She, she sees Jesus standing there. She doesn't realize it was Jesus. Why? Now, I know there's a lot of kind of mystical stuff that gets put around this. Well, he was this, he was that. He was... Do you know why I think she didn't recognize him? Because she thought he was dead. I've seen plenty of people that looked like people that passed away, and I've never thought it was them. And then he asks her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? You can almost hear like what he said to the disciples all the time. Why are you afraid? What is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, and I love this, just two seconds on theology. If you know any of the story uh, of Paul, when he describes Jesus, he describes Jesus as the second Adam. Adam was the firstborn in all creation. Jesus is the firstborn into new creation, right? And think about it. Adam was, was born in a garden. Where was Jesus resurrected? In a garden. And, and remember what Adam's job was? He was to tend the garden. So Adam was a gardener. And Jesus shows up in the scene in the garden. And guess what he looks like? What are the odds? She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. I mean, think about a first century woman saying this. Let me know where you took his body to. I will figure out a way to go get it if I have to strap it over my shoulder. Not to mention, it'll make me ceremonially unclean. I won't be able to go to temple. But let me know. I'll go get it. That's what he meant to me. And you can almost see Jesus hearing that and thinking about what she was willing to do for him. And Jesus looks at her and said, Mary. I mean, you got to feel that. Because with that one word, it's the dawn of an entire new age. For Mary, it was the dawn of an entire new hope. She hears Jesus call her name. Maybe she even remembers that time when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And she turns towards him and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I haven't ascended yet to the Father, but instead go to my brothers and tell them. And I love it. Here comes his first post-resurrection theology lesson. This is how important this is. Tell them I'm ascending to my Father and yours your Father. I'm ascending to my God and to your God. And in this moment, please watch this now, in this moment, don't miss it, everything changes. Everything. For Mary, and if you would believe, the entire world. Her hope, which had vanished, 
comes racing back. Her sorrow and tears replaced with joy. Her fear replaced with courage. Her hopelessness overwhelmed now with new cause and purpose. Mary is the first human being to realize everything is different. Nothing can remain the same now. If Jesus has overcome death and the grave, I need to reorient the way I think. I mean, it's just even amazing down to the fact that he tells Mary, you're going to be my witness. Go tell them what you've seen. If you know anything about first century Palestine, women weren't allowed to be witnesses even in a court. Their testimony didn't matter. Do you see how he begins to reorient everything? On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together, and here's what I love. You know, Mary, you can picture these are typical guys, right? And Mary believes and she runs and she tells them all that's happened, right? On the, first, on, the, on the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders because they're still hiding, they're still afraid, they still think the war is on, they still think sin rules, death reigns. I mean, you could just hear them. Good for Mary. You know how these women are. They get themselves all fired up about this stuff. We're sophisticated, educated men behind a locked door. Because they think the war is still on. But Luke records the moment when they realized it was over. Jesus walks in the room. They were startled and frightened, as you would imagine they would be, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, same question, why are you, why are you so afraid? Why are you troubled? Why does doubt rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything's got to be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He told them, this is what's written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning here. And you see, coming to believe in the resurrection changes everything for them too. Worry, fear, anxiety all fade away. Perspective, purpose, cause, calling come. In fact, Jesus gives them their calling. The same purpose he gave Mary. Church, I think it's the same purpose he's giving you and I 2,000 years later. He looked at them and said, you're witnesses of these things. You're witnesses of these things. Now, here's my story. I'm just a normal human being. I know you find that hard to believe. But I believe... That Jesus is alive, that he was dead, and that he's resurrected. And I don't believe so because my mommy taught me that, a little song about it. I don't believe so because my Sunday school teacher told me about it. I don't believe so simply because the Bible tells me about it. I mean, some of you know my story. I had a nice little thing going. Had a CFA charter, a little private equity firm I was running. And I walked a little, please, let's be honest, right? I didn't give up much, okay? I'm the pastor of Mendham Hills, right? It's not like I'm suffering over a, under a tree in Africa. But my life got rearranged, reoriented, because I believe, well, here's what didn't reorient it. My life didn't change because I thought Jesus is a good teacher. He was, but it didn't change my life. My life didn't get changed because I, I love Jesus is a good story. I mean, Jesus could tell a mean story. That prodigal son thing, I mean, that's gold, right? Didn't change my life. 
I believe that Jesus is alive because Mary saw him, told John about him. Matthew, a tax collector who had a lot to risk, saw him resurrected and wrote about him. Mark went and talked to a lot of people that wrote about, and then wrote about him. Luke, a really educated first century guy, set out to write a very detailed account about his resurrection. John spent most of the rest of his life trying, writing about him. Peter, who denied him, suddenly re-believed in him. And Paul, who never even met Jesus until he met the resurrected Jesus, wrote half of the New Testament about him. I believe that Jesus is resurrected because none of them believed it. They all fled and hid and abandoned Jesus. Some denied it. You know what they did? They went back to work. But something happened. Something happened that changed everything. And men and women that only days before were hiding in a locked room for fear of the authorities wind up in the street confronting the same powers with no army, no weapons, they're confronted and told to stop preaching about this Jesus, and they said, we can't. In fact, just about every one of these people I told you about wound up suffering and dying horrific deaths of martyrs. Some of them even requested to be crucified upside down because they didn't feel themselves worthy of dying the same way their Lord Jesus did. And they did this not because of Jesus' teaching, not because of his parables, not because of his healings, not because of his miracles, not because he fulfilled prophecies. Do you know why they did it? Because they believed in the resurrection. And it changed everything. Those were all well and good things, but they changed nothing. They believed in all those things, but they still thought the war wasn't over. It was the resurrection that reoriented everything. In fact... Paul, who too would die the life of a martyr? He starts to hear about this church he planted in Corinth, and people are coming into that church, and they're telling things, the same thing they say to you. You know, that Jesus, that's pretty good. There's a lot of wise religious guys out there, and Jesus is one of them. And Jesus has some very good teaching, very good moral teaching. And if we just follow his advice, everything be good. You don't need to worry about the resurrection stuff. Let's not get carried away. And Paul catches wind of this, and here's what he writes to Corinthians. He says, Listen, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, I mean, Paul's just being blunt. Those people that you love that died, they're gone. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Chief loser right here. I'm dragging you along with me. My kids are going to be really ticked at me if I'm wrong about this. <laughs> but I don't think I am. Mary, Mark, Luke, Peter, James, John. I, I don't think I'm wrong. I, I, think, I think the war's over. I mean, think about that, guys. Do you know what that means? I mean, it means all kinds of crazy things. In fact, you should just reflect on it. I just reflected on it for a little bit. Like, for example, if the war's really over, if Jesus is alive and came back from the dead, you, you know what it means? It means that somebody's in control of everything that's going on. 
It means that somebody's watching over you. Everything's not just random. You know what it means? It means not once, never in your life, ever, have you ever been alone. Never. It means when you go and pray, there's somebody listening to you. It means that this is crazy, but you're so precious to the creator of all things that he knows the very number of hairs on your head. Because if the war is over and death is defeated, do you know what it means? I mean, you know if Jesus is alive, you don't need a bucket list anymore? You get that? You're going to live forever and ever and ever. You don't have to feel the pressure to get it all done. The Rockies will be there. The beaches, you don't got to get to them all now. They're, they'll be around. Think about it. All of the striving and the rushing and the hustling we get caught up in trying to make something of ourselves in this life, trying to dig out a little legacy, you can let it go. I mean, what you achieve in this world is, I mean, it's relatively meaningless in light of the world to come. I mean, if the war is over and we've already won, why do we get so bogged down in worry, shame, guilt, regret? I mean, if Jesus is risen from the grave, the price for every one of your sins, I mean, the worst ones, your darkest moment, your worst night, you know that one thing that you hope that no one ever finds out about? We all have that like little one thing. I mean, I can admit to some things, but there's this one thing. Yeah, you can let that go. God, forgive him. You don't got to worry about that anymore. Think of the implications for how you live, what you tell your children, what you worry about. You're never going to die. You don't need to worry about if you've been good enough. By faith, you've been freed from sin and shame. You can come out of whatever it is you're hiding behind. You don't need to impress anybody anymore. You won. The game ended years ago. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone. So much fear, so much worry and anxiety and depression and anger are all rooted in the belief that this is all there is. I got a couple of years left here and I got to do something with them. And if I haven't, then, then oh, I'm a loser and I messed up and I wasted my one and only life. What if this isn't your one and only life? Think about this. If Jesus is alive, and I think he is, nothing will ever be lost. You will never lose anything. I mean, think about that. Not only does that mean we can live with a different time horizon, you could actually willingly begin to lay down some stuff. Give away some of your stuff, your time, your money. I mean, heck, you could even maybe sacrifice your bodies, as Jesus says, like give them over for the purposes of God and not for our own stuff. Maybe to be a witness because you're not gonna lose any of it. And not only that, it means that if you would just be willing to do that, there is an eternal reward waiting for you based on it. You know what it means? It means we can mourn different than anybody else. We mourn, of course, we miss people, but we mourn with hope. Because of the resurrection, there's hope. Not only that, for those who have died believing in the resurrection, there's not just hope, there's certainty of reunion. Now listen to me now, that parent that you buried, that child that you lost, 
around for a short time, sure, but it's going to be like a business trip. You're going to live together, for those who would believe, forever. If there is no resurrection, Paul's right. We're fools. My wife's going to be mad. She would have, had my, would have loved to have had a bigger house. I'm a fool. But she believes there's a resurrection. I do too. You see, there was for Jesus, there will be for me, and if you will believe, there will be a resurrection for you in this life from sin and fear and worry and strife and in the one to come. I'll close with this. Do not live your life like Onoda did. He gave away the best years of his life fighting a war that was ended years, decades earlier. You won. Live that way. Believe. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand and sing with me.
John finished up his recounting of Jesus' resurrection this way. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so when you came in this morning, I don't know if you caught it in the opening, during World War II, things looked bad for the Allies. And in order to help people understand that victory was not just possible, but that it was coming, everybody just started slapping V's up everywhere to, remember, to remind them in the face of the greatest adversity, victory was not only possible, but it was coming. And so when you came in this morning, we gave you a V sticker. Go stick it somewhere. <laughs> not on your husband's forehead. <laughs> you know why? Because victory is not only possible, victory is here. Amen. Happy Easter, madam. I'll see you next week.